Welcome to the Digiday Podcast. I'm Brian Marcy. Uh, I want to thank Max Wellens. He filled in uh, for me last week as I was uh, on the move, um, moving to Miami of all places. So this week we are going to be doing a podcast about podcasts, and I'm excited to have uh, Nick Kwa on um, to talk about podcasting and also, you know, building a sort of mini media empire because that's that's the hot thing these days. Nick, welcome. Oh, my pleasure. So let's, I mean, you are the, uh, the proprietor of Hot Pod. Um, explain, explain the start. It was back in like 2014. I mean, this is like a classic story, right, of, of a side project. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I was actually working in the same newsroom as your producer, Pierre. Um, we were business insider together. I was working on something else. I was uh, focusing on e-commerce. Um, and then, but I've been sort of a podcast consumer and a fan for quite some time by that point. And, you know, 2014 is marked by the uh, sort of first season of Serial being as big as it was. Um, and, you know, it generated a lot of headlines, a lot of sort of coverage. But as a podcast consumer, I looked at the coverage, didn't quite see that uh, it accurately captured what I thought was happening in space. So I started this project to to cover it um, as, a, as you know, as a way to learn how to report and write about stuff. Um, and six years later, it's it's a... It's my company. It's a full-time job, um, and it's um, it's you know it's overwhelming. Writing a business is overwhelming. Okay, I want to get into that, and then we'll get into the the state of the podcasting. Um, so, tell me, when when did you decide to make this a, a full-time gig? Um, around late 2015, um, I was just antsy enough, and the news that I had gotten to a point where I felt like I could just take the leap um, and try to slap on a paywall some sort of freemium sort of structure and see what happens. Uh, I don't know. It's, I, I am a kind of a, a hyperactive, itchy person, and I can't really sit in one job at, <laughs> for too long. Um, and so I saved up maybe like three months worth of rent and and took the shot. And, um, and that's sort of when I left the, my job. I was then at Panoply, which is a podcast company. Uh, I was there for a couple of months, which is kind of complicated when you're both writing about a podcast industry and so also working for a, a podcast company. Um, and then I decided to just go independent because I just wanted to spend more time writing and thinking about this stuff without being beholden to another job. Okay, so it, it was a news, mostly a newsletter, yeah? Yeah, it's still mostly a newsletter. Yeah, so how many subscribers did you have when you made the leap? Uh, it wasn't a lot. It was about maybe 5,000 with a decent like 60% open rate. So I knew that that was like a couple of thousand people, um, some of a percentage of which would probably end up being paid supporters. Um, and that was, that was the gambit at the time. I just needed to get to a point where it could just, it could pay off, uh, yeah. MailChimp hosting expenses and my rent. So that's, that was the calculation there. Okay. I mean, this was pre Substack, So you were, um, bit of a trailblazer there. Uh, yeah, you know, uh, Substack has is a you know capitalized on an interesting trend. We'll see if it plays out. <laughs> but so, uh, not everybody can live this life. <laughs> so when you say we'll see, I mean, you know, I'm sure there's look. This is a, we we talk on this podcast about accelerations, and it's also causing uh, people to think about what they're doing. Um, and what what's been the hardest part? I mean, you you had mentioned before that it's hard to run a business. Explain the hard part of 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 when you decided to go and make this a full-time gig to, um, you know, making it like a true living. Hmm. So I think when we're talking about this sort of structure, we're, we're talking about a very specific kind of media newsletter business, right? It's, you know, there are a couple of newsletter-driven businesses that have multiple, you know, employees that have multiple writers. Uh, Hotpot, for the most part, uh, 
every, I handle everything from end to end. I handle ad sales. I handle uh, troubleshooting when it comes to customer service and stuff like that. And I think that's the wave that we're seeing of these sort of individual, largely single person led newsletters. Even though I have a couple of uh, contributing writers, I still like run the books and and manage the back end. That's a lot. Um, and that can be quite lonely and that can be quite uh, difficult. You can't take certain kinds of swings because there's only one of you. Um, and also, you know, I've been doing this for six years and telling variations on a story and telling the same stories for six years is create takes a very specific kind of creative person. Um, you know, some of us, like I think some creative folks and some journalists, they like to you know, spread their wings and, and change beats once in a while. You can't really do that with this kind of business. And so that's been part of the creative friction that I've been feeling, uh, you know, six to seven years into this business now. Okay, so at 2014 was when Serial exploded, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, you got the timing right. Yep. Right? <laughs> I mean, podcasting <laughs> has been around for, for a while, but I think the last, uh, the last six years um, has seen a true acceleration. Yeah, the last six years was the, I think, the formation of, like, the industry guts. Whereas before 2014, there was uh, commerce, there was a business there. Uh, but it was very much sort of anticipatory. Uh, there was Midroll, which kind of tried to figure out podcast advertising at scale. Um, but I think there was still this sense that that the medium needed to really quote unquote validate itself in the eyes of like bigger money. And I think that was the real shift. Like there was always podcasts before. There will be podcasts beyond this point. But the past six years has largely been uh, the story of capital coming in and different uh, legacy institutions finding their positions in it, and new institutions trying to find their place within that within those ranks. Okay, so where are we right now? I mean, it, it, the the big players are particularly Spotify. We saw the New York Times um, acquiring Serial uh, just yesterday. Yeah. Um, where I, where are we right now? Is this now the um, consolidation phase of this? Uh, you know, still nascent industry, I would say. Yeah, very much so. I think it's it's what I think is the first wave of consolidation. Like, I think what was interesting about the 2014 to 2018 or 19 period, I want to say, was that we saw the, the formation of a bunch of new companies that were that were interesting, and that you know some of them always had the plan to be acquired or to to be so sort of sucked up to this larger big media machine. Uh, so you had like Gimlet, you had The Ringer, you had, um, you know, Serial Productions spun out and became its own entity. Um, you just have a bunch of these different players um, trying to figure out if they could forge the market on their own. And so what we saw over the past two years in particular, particularly when Spotify started um, its acquisitions in, in, in podcasting, it sort of really created this acceleration of that, you know, M&A market, basically. Um up until like maybe 2017, the biggest acquisition was Stitcher going over the scripts. And now um, it feels like we've seen audio companies, bigger audio companies, that's not just podcast specific, find their positions and they they basically uh, bought their way into it. And so where we are right now in the middle of 2020 is, I think, the end of this first consolidation period. Is this, I mean, so this seems like it was Apple's game to lose. Like, right. I mean, like Apple was sort of the dominant way people were getting podcasts. Right. Um, it's interesting to phrase it that way because 
it implies that we know what Apple wants with podcasting. Well, uh, I mean, let's look like Apple's like a trillion dollar business, right? So I mean, for them, pod, for, you know, for you and I, like podcasting, it's like, wow, this is a growing big business and stuff like this. And yeah, for, it's for Apple, for them, it's probably right? not even worth uh, Tim Cook to have a 15 minute meeting on it probably for years. <laughs> right. Um, I mean, it's, it's just, I mean, it's been sort of an interesting brand value proposition for them. Like, uh, there's no like real money for them in this just yet, but it was for the longest time, a really interesting association between a really interesting media space and this gigantic brand. Um, but from a sort of business perspective, like I, you know, the argument is that they would, their Apple podcast platform, the value there for them is, is enough in, engagement and usership that would sort of trickle down into other parts of their product. And it seems that their response to Spotify trying to find their way into some sort of podcast, like powerhouse position is to lean deeper into that into that idea of like podcast is a feeder into these other parts of our business. And so the notion of whether this was Apple's games to lose, I don't know. Um, I don't, I, I have long thought that maybe Apple should have taken podcasting more seriously as a business and a revenue proposition, but that runs an encounter to what has been, I think, core to podcasting's formation over the past, you know, decade or so, uh, is the fact that they have an quote unquote open publishing ecosystem. Yeah. And Apple's position in that allowed that to happen. Um, and to change that position would fundamentally restructure the dynamics of the space. Yeah, and also, I mean, look, if you're going to be a platform, you have to provide a, a bunch of services. And I think we're seeing sort of this with Shopify and and, yes. and Substack in many ways. Like, you have to provide distribution. I mean, find an audience. You have to provide monetization options. And with podcasting, that's been mostly advertising. Um, yes. And um, Apple is not really into advertising. No, put it mildly. Yeah, nor do they see that they're in a mode where they are giving better tools to podcasters that use their platform for distribution, right? Um, the podcast, the Apple Podcast app, while the strongest driver is actually still a pretty bad experience for a user. Um, and if you're a podcaster publishing through the platform, you know you don't get the tools that you need to really build a business off it. So um, from that perspective, there is this gap that even if Apple didn't want to go into this quote unquote platform war with Spotify. There's definitely things that they can do to make podcasts still really sort of want to work with Apple and, and push through their distribution systems. Okay, so let's talk about Spotify. Were you surprised when they, um, that one, that they bought Gimlet and two, that they paid so much money for Gimlet? Um, one, the answer to one was yes. I was surprised because Spotify had dipped its toe into podcasting a couple of times before early 2019. Uh, you know, they, they, tried to sort of add podcasting into the mix together with an initial video push in 2017, I believe, where they, they kind of tried to position themselves as a multimedia platform for, for a while. And so when 2019 rolled about and they jumped into the pool with that kind of rigor, um, it was surprising that they decided to make the decision and re basically reframe the narrative of the market. But the fact that they paid a lot of money for Gimlet and would go on to pay a lot of money for other podcast deals makes a ton of sense because uh, if you're going to double down on this narrative that you're going to be more than a music streaming platform, uh, you need a kind of built confidence around the fact that you're going to take this really seriously. And, you know, 230 million for Gimlet and another 100 or so for Anchor at the time, that's that's really taking it seriously. Right. 
I mean, is this the beginning of the end of the sort of scruffy, endearing phase of podcasting? You know what I mean? Like, I mean, the 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 web, I mean, I've been covering this stuff forever. So, I mean, yeah. back when it was like new and stuff like this, it was like the place that independent creators could like find their audiences and voice. And then it just became Google and Facebook and, yeah. and um, it sort of lost its charm. Podcasting, I, I feel like, you know, it was around for a long time. I mean, I know I was a listener of Dawn and Drew, okay? So that's how long <laughs> I, I've been listening to podcasts. And it sort of was different from the web, right? It had a lot yeah. of independent voices. Um, it was a little bit, um, it was a little scruffy and stuff like this. It was very craft. Mm. Is this the sort of graduating into it, it being driven by platforms, it being, um, dominated by like, you know, big producers versus, you know, independent voices? I think there's a, there's a spectrum, right? I think that is the real concern and that is the possibility that we are heading into a situation in which, uh, the rote mechanical in- platform incentives deeply restructure how uh, creators and producers relate to the space. Um, and it could look like a situation where, uh, you know, not unlike Facebook and what Facebook and Google did to the web. But um, there are other ways that this could play out. And it really, really depends on how A, Spotify essentially figures out its position in the market in the way that it wants to. Uh, how the their sort of incentives, the incentives around podcasts fits into the rest of incentives, and also just how they kind of want to see creativity in that platform, because you know you, you do need you do need people to to want to make more stuff within the space, and you know to some extent you can always keep relying on bigger names, but there are other potential realities here. I think film and television is an interesting comparison point, while of course there there are a couple there are major structural differences there. I think the what happened in the 70s, 80s, and 90s when we sort of have a conversation about film, what happened to the interesting independent creators, uh, creative filmmakers, there's still spaces for those filmmakers to be interesting and creative and independent today. It just looks significantly different than the heyday of the 60s, 70s, 80s when people were getting really weird and they could be sort of supported by what were relatively smaller studio structures at the time. Um, I kind of feel like we're we're probably in a, and we'll probably end up in a place where there will always be spaces for scrappier, weirder, independent operations to, you know, make their stuff, maybe access an audience. But it's a fundamentally different kind of genre of the market compared to what most of podcasting is going to be, which is more Will Ferrell's, which is more Conan O'Brien's, which is more, you know, rich, white, mostly men doing stuff. And I think that's, that's just the... That's just kind of how this capitalistic structure of media kind of works, right? It always <laughs> privileges the, the core elite. Oh my God, we're going we're going into the, the capitalistic go. structures. Let's do it. <laughs> let's let's unite the workers. You're in Boise. I'm in Miami. Um, it, speaking of because you're in Boise, like, is this mainstream yet? I mean, like, because I think you know, with podcasting, it's really been a. I think it's been a slow burn. I mean, this this has been around a long time. Yeah, you know, there's been inflection points. Um, and, you know, you see the data. I think sometimes we assume things are mainstream just because, you know, I, I do a podcast, you write about it, <laughs> you know, but um, I don't know if my family listens to podcasts. They occasionally have listened to this one. Uh, you know, the, the question of mainstream is like, you know, how you're looking at it, right? Like, are we looking from a quantitative demographic perspective? Are we looking from it so, from sort of like a cultural portrayal perspective? Like, well, I, think, I will say this: I think I think culturally it punches above its weight, and I think that's what makes it interesting. But I think from a quantitative, when you think about 
advertising, mm-hmm. uh, particularly since it's mostly an advertising medium right now. You know, they really they always want reach at the end of the day. Yes, um, and you know the reach isn't that great. It, it's not TV. It's not streaming yeah. even. Yeah, uh, but and also, but you know, the way to think about podcasting in relation to sort of like TV and and like these other sort of structures is that those are limited. Uh, those those are defined by their sort of finitude of their of the way that they are distributed. With podcasts, like there are so many podcasts, and each individual one probably doesn't have the scale. Most of the each individual one doesn't have the scale, and so that's why you have a push from Spotify like this to try to find a way to bundle all these episodes together and monetize it. So. Um, Mainstream from a cultural perspective, yes, you're absolutely right. It does punch above its weight. You know, the daily is a phenomenon. It's a part of people's lives. It it is the kind of show that that bleeds the categories because it's also being distributed over public radio stations. But from uh, sort of like a mechanical reach standpoint, uh, I think we are at a place where you know we know that you know a third of Americans right now are active podcast consumers, which is to say they can be considered monthly active listeners. Um, and there remains this massive gap between monetization and the actual engagement of it. Um, but I think when we talk about mainstream, we're actually talking about like cultural representation. And I don't know. It's I kind of feel like podcasting is to a certain uh, economic class, but uh, and to a certain races more of it than others. But we'll, we'll see over time because I think we're also talking about this within the context of the uh, a culture that doesn't have a that hasn't that doesn't have a monoculture anymore like everybody has little buckets and so it's a little bit tricky to define mainstream and non-mainstream mm-hmm. in this context but it sounds like you're saying you've, you've you've flicked at it a few times that um you know particularly at this time when um we're examining all sorts of structures that podcasting does remain overwhelmingly white and male i say that as a white male podcaster yeah i mean that's that's the sense and it's also it's you there it is a sort of like the visceral subjective sense. And I think it is probably true, even though the difficulty of quantifying that is the sense that like the majority of I mean, anybody can make a podcast, right? And it's it's kinda hard to, you know, lean on a platform to pull out that sort of uh, platform mm-hmm. level data about the representations of like ethnicities and gender across who's yeah. making podcasts. They just don't ask that in the metadata. But but, but um, let's 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 what about like, you know, the top podcasts? That's exactly like that's exactly where we're gonna go. Yeah. The like who's getting acquired? Who are the executives at these quote unquote bigger podcast companies? Who are um, who tends to be the hosts in those shows? Overwhelmingly, yes, uh, they're they're white and they're male, and they tend to be uh, from also from other media systems, right? Alex Bloomberg came from public radio. Joe Rogan uh, is has all these sort of power structures in other places, from television to MMA. Uh, but they all sort of came to this. They saw found another more opportunity to extract value from this new space. And yes, it is very much white male. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. So let's talk about advertising for for a minute. Um, you, you mentioned, I mean, any of these new media media, uh, there usually is a gap, a monetization gap between the amount of time spent and the amount of budgets, ad budgets that go to them, um, and that that gap, despite podcast advertising growing quite a bit, still exists, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do you think? I mean, right now, I think one of the, the sort of charms of podcasting is that it isn't mechanized like uh, yeah. all of digital media. Um, you have hosts reading ads and, and you know, the, the, the ad tech folks see that and they're like, that doesn't scale. Um, what, what needs to be done to have podcast advertising close that delta that always exists, but at the same time not become 
as grotesque as digital advertising? Um, I think there are two components of my response to this. One is the the burden <laughs> really lies on the advertiser. Uh, let, I mean, the argument can be made that it is the, always the platform's fault. These sort of consolidating, commoditizing, mechanizing platforms, whether it's Facebook, Google, maybe Spotify moving forward, uh, that they are the ones that um, that forces to happen because they close the gap. Uh, but the argument can also be made that they are capitalizing on incentives from the advertiser side. They're giving advertisers what they want, and they're building structures that would push the media format, in this case podcasting, to be put into a bucket such that uh, advertisers would be super happy with. And you can just plug and play, and they don't have to worry about the vicissitudes and the specificity of like what makes a podcast ad great. And so I would, I would push the emphasis a little more away from the platform sometimes and towards more towards the advertisers, that they need to... They need to know that their money is the thing that causes this to happen, right? Uh, if advertisers uh, weren't so sort of like de- so dependent on the uh, pleasures of a of a platform, and they you know were more proactive in uh, understanding the value of each individual podcast and, and each individual media format and what podcasts can do uniquely, um, then we that we wouldn't really see an acceleration of this problem, right? Mm-hmm. The mechanizing happens because advertisers want it to happen, and that's that's something that we had to kind of really grok with. Well, typically, advertisers want it to be easy to buy, easy mm-hmm. to, quote-unquote, traffic, to, to run the ads and create the ads, um, and then effective, like, at yeah. the end of the day. They don't want to have to deal with a thousand different podcasts in order to sell some socks. Right. But, you know, also, like, the assumption is made that the platforms are always the better option for advertising, even though that there have been many claims of, you know, ad fraud and metrics manipulation, that kind of stuff. And so, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's what they want. That's what they think they're getting from platforms. That might that might be true. They might be seeing positive outcomes. But, um, you know, your your money is sort of what def- decides this, right? Um, how you use that money, how you, is it easy money? Is it hard money? Is it thoughtful money? Is it, uh, you know, less than thoughtful money? Really, I do feel like the owners should be, the conversation should shift a little more to these advertisers as opposed to just the platforms being the sort of ill actors here. Um, so my commute used to it used to be a half hour and involved a boat and, and various other things, and it was a perfect length for a podcast. Uh, my commute's now um, about like 20 feet. Um, <laughs> so I, I personally have found my time with podcasts has gone down a little bit. Um, with the coronavirus, um, are we seeing that normalize at this point? I mean, we wrote an article that the the other day that the the ad marketplace has actually held up, you know, which is kind of surprising to me. Yeah, I'm I'm surprised about it too, and that's something that the IAB found, uh, Interactive Advertising Bureau found, to the extent that you can, you know, trust that report uh, and the methodology there. And I trust it. Um, what we've found is that the sort of whittling down of the morning commute. Uh, because of the coronavirus sort of social distancing effects, um, has in- initially caused a drop in listening across the board. But uh, there were gains over the past couple of months where it seemed like a lot of listeners just shifted their their main listening time over to like the lunch hour. And um, it's sort of really playing into what has been a core value proposition of podcasting for a long time, which is it is a thing that you consume while you're doing other things. And it is the sort of media format that can graft onto sort of these in-between spaces, doing your laundry, working out, that kind of stuff, when you're not you know, being able to watch television. Um, the Another interesting data point that sort of like contextualizes this a little further is the fact that we've seen radio ratings, broad, linear broadcast radio ratings plummet, um, and they just have not recovered. 
And when it comes to something like NPR, which is, I think, the subject of a, of a piece a couple of days ago, uh, where they saw this dynamic in which broadcast ratings just, you know, plummeted, but they made it up in digital, whether it's over the website or through podcasts. So we're seeing um, this sort of stabili- stabilizing and normalizing happening uh, by sh- just shifting between two different platforms here. It's, it's the acceleration of something that we thought was going to happen for a long time, um, and it, but it's finally here. And explain to me the economics for how Joe Rogan is worth $100 million. Well, you know, it remains to be seen whether Joe Rogan, you know, as a, the Joe Rogan experience as an asset itself is worth $100 million, but, but I think Spotify would argue it, it's, it's at least $100 million worth to your strategy which is to simply port over his sort of really loyal, engaged, rabid fan base over into Spotify so that they can use Spotify as their go-to first choice for for podcasts, in which case it can be trickled down to other parts of Spotify's business, whether it's to be pushed into other podcasts or to be flipped over into premium subscriptions. So, um, you know, the Jorogan experience is largely considered and thought to be one of the biggest podcasts like in the market, full stop. Next to the Daily, maybe even bigger. And so, and there's also this understanding that the kind of people who listen to Joe Rogan are not exactly the kinds of people you can get from other podcasts, The Daily, This American Life, uh, you know, Bodega Boys, whatever. And so there's a sense that there's a unique bucket of people there. There's also a lot of ethical, like sort of ethically related problems with that because, you know, Jorgen is a controversial person who brings on controversial guests. He's just asking questions. He's just asking questions. He's a (laughs) quote-unquote free thinker, you know, you can't (laughs) pin him down. But uh, it pushes Spotify into this possible sort of liability area where they have to, you know, deal with the Facebook problem. Are you a platform? Are you a publisher? Do you have any responsibilities of what's being said yeah. with the people that you sign deals with? And so, well, I mean, uh, you know, I, I will say this, million I mean, could, could go back, could backfire here. I don't know. You know, most platforms keep content creators at, at arm's length, right? And, um, you know, Spotify's gone fully in. You know, I mean, they own the creators. I mean, uh, not all the creators, but they own, they own Gimlet creator. They own the Ringer yeah. creator. They own, now, I guess, the, the rights to Joe Rogan. So, I mean, they can't really play that dodge, I guess, that most platforms did. It's like, hey, we're just a platform. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it is the, uh, it's the perennial question of can you cake, have your cake and eat it too? Um, and they are, they are in a different position re- relative to Facebook and Google. You're absolutely right. Uh, and I don't think we've seen the first real test of that new position yet. Uh, a couple of days ago, before we are recording this, there was an instance where I think Rogan brought on somebody who was very quite explicitly anti-trans. Um, and that that kind of drew some conversation, but it hasn't really kind of forced the issue just yet. But there will be there, we will get to that point. I, yeah. I'm pretty sure quite soon we'll get to that point. Oh, no doubt. I mean... I'm 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 looking at my crystal ball and I see like you know just asking questions about whether someone should really take the uh, coronavirus vaccine. Um, that's my prediction. In a few months, um, because these these questions come up and then there's going to be brand safety issues and, and everything, Absolutely. everything and, else that you know, comes along with it. That's not even to mention you know misinformation, which is something that sure. um, every platform is dealing with, and Spotify has yet to really get there, even though. I think they did. They they do have like ported over a bunch of COVID nineteen podcasts in the initial wave, a couple some of which were kind of rife misinformation distributors, uh, but we didn't see any sort of real flashpoint there mm-hmm. just yet. So I mean, you mentioned you started this right when Serial um, uh, came on the scene. I think it it reawakened podcasting in, in in many ways and showed how it could be something more than than Don and Drew say. Um, 
And now New York Times has bought um, uh, Serial. And yeah. they have at least one really breakout hit, The Daily. Um, what do you see happening there with, with The Times um, acquiring Serial? I mean, obviously, on the ad side, podcasting is the one bright spot right now for The New York Times. I mean, the, their business is, is subscription first yes. by a long shot. And their ad business is, um, I don't want to say in the toilet, but it's definitely in, in the bathroom. Yeah, it's somewhere in the basement. Um, <laughs> so when I was sort of reporting out the the deal yesterday, and I was talking to Sam Dolnick and um, Stephanie Price, who is the uh, VP of TV and audio over there. There was this theory uh, in a Ben Smith column from March that what we're seeing with the sort of audio play specifically is possibly a lead up to some sort of new paid ad, uh, audio product, something in the vein of the, the sort of really popular cooking app that they have. Yeah. Uh, but when I put the question to them, uh, they... they at least for for Prius, she pointed out that um, the the audio stuff has done two really good things for the Times. One, it's a great top-of-the-funnel marketing tool for people who aren't already subscribers, right? It's either engaging them or exposing them to more people that who would eventually become subscribers. So it, it feeds into that business. The other thing she mentioned that it is a very has been a good growing ad business for them. And so I think for as long as there is this sort of push for, uh, or, you know, this room for podcast advertising, audio advertising in this form to grow, I think there, that will always be an interesting value for them up until it's, it stops. And then maybe we might see the paid audio apps strategy uh, play into this again. The other part of the Serial Productions deal that I think is interesting to highlight is that in addition to acquiring Serial Productions, they've also forged a formal sort of strategic alliance with This American Life. Part of that involves the fact that the Times will not be taking over ad sales. So I think at the very least that indicates that um, they're interested in this audio advertising thing. They will continue to be they will continue to be interested for as long as though there's growth. Um, and I and I don't think yeah. um, I don't think I see that strategy shifting anytime soon. Yeah, I know Seb Tomich is a loyal um, Digiday uh, podcast listener. Um, so, you know, Seb wants to keep, he's their head of advertising. He definitely wants to keep the podcasting <laughs> <laughs> available to advertising. He does not want to be just selling uh, display ads these days. Not Got to preserve your business. job. I respect it. <laughs> yeah. So are you surprised that there hasn't been more traction in, and look, there's a lot of technical reasons, in subscriber like subscription models for podcasting? Um, not surprised. And explain well, the hurdles. I mean, there's just a lot of tech hurdles. Yeah, I mean, the, well, the, even before you get to the tech hurdles, there is just this cultural hurdle, which is podcasting has been free for the longest time, so why would you pay for it? Um, I think there there is more traction in the not paywalled podcast, but like, if you like it, support it with your dollars a model. You know, that's been cultivated through years of public radio, decades of public radio. But also um, just the sort of feeling of like paying it forward. Um, when it comes to like pay $7 so that I can access this uh, exclusive thing that mm -hmm. I cannot get a version anywhere else, you have an infinite competition issue because you're basically saying that you're paying $7 for something that you cannot get elsewhere. And you're up against a competitive sphere where you can go like, you know, if this is a true crime podcast, I can get like millions and millions of Drew Kent's podcasts anywhere else for free. So why would I pay for this this one in particular? So that value proposition uh, has to be very defined. Uh, I, I kind of always sort of believed in the argument that there's more yardage if you were to build a paid subscription uh, business around a niche that has been well-served by podcasting just yet. Maybe it's fiction, maybe it's sports, uh, and just be very disciplined about it. So 
And so that's sort of my feeling about that. And when it comes to the technical stuff, it's, you know, it, the podcast distribution is decentralized still. Um, and, you know, most of it seems to be routed through Apple and an increasing uh, layer it seems to be routed through Spotify. And if you're going to try to build a paid subscription business, you're either in the app marketing game, in which case you're in one of the hardest games in a business, or you're going to have to play ball with one of these bigger distributors. And that's, um, you know, you're a ant, you're an ant in the savannah of elephants. Mm -hmm. So I don't really know how you can game that out. What's the biggest like success case for a paid podcast? Audible. Um, you know, we don't think about them as, as podcasts, but like, there's also a linguistic issue here. Like, are we talking, yeah, no. is it still a podcast if it's like we had a paywall? Da, 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 I'm, glad, I'm glad it lasts a half hour until we started getting into, well, is it really a podcast? Is yeah, it just right. an audio file? Look, I went to a liberal arts college. Like, I'm familiar <laughs> with weed. Um, Audible is, is, the, is the interesting player here that has, for the longest time, just not really figured its way out into this specific area of the market. They've tried a couple of years ago with a team that was built around Eric Dozum, who's a former NPR vet, um, and then um, a couple of strategic sort of pivots later, and they just got rid of a couple of executives. And for some reason, they're, they're down back in this pool where they're trying to present themselves as, you know, exclusive paid-first podcasts with celebrities. So there is proof here that people will pay for something that they will funnel into their ears. Uh, the question is, you know, value proposition, market differentiation, and market proposition. Um, and whether the question, when the question gets framed into, can you start a new one? Uh, that's a really good question. And without a niche and a clear uh, place in the market, I, I don't know if there's if there's room for that. You know, we're dancing around this, and you got to say that Luminary was the last big, uh, flashy attempt where they raised millions and millions of dollars to do precisely this from scratch. Um, yeah. You know, shows weren't that uh, compelling compared to what I can get yeah. elsewhere, and also the app itself wasn't a really good experience. It, so it, there's another one. It's like Himalaya Media. Himalaya is a big question mark for me, man. It's a it's a Chinese company. There's a lot of I have a lot of questions around like what exactly it's doing. Um, yeah. The actual Chinese company Zimalaya, which is I think they present themselves as a as an audio education infotainment company. Uh, they are highly successful, but you always got to ask the question with highly successful Chinese tech companies: Is this an actual market outcome, or is this <laughs> is, is it something else? Yeah, exactly. Um, and so, you know, I that entire, despite you know my own family heritage being from China, I look at that with a great uh, anxiety, and I do not think it's it's worth you know inserting its part into this conversation about American podcasting. Yeah. So, final thing is because I see we're at thirty minutes. Can you confirm for me uh, my idea that most podcasts should be a half hour? I think most podcasts should be uh, 10 to 20 minutes. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah, absolutely right. I think, you know, I so I, I just launched this podcast. Presumably, it's one the, it's it's a news pack for why I'm on this episode right now. It's called Server to Pod. We're trying to figure out, like, can we do this in less than half an hour? And the thing is, is that, like, I think if you kind of walk through the user journey, yeah, most new podcasts, I think, should should be short because you have to sort of make the argument that you want to fit this into the trial of somebody's life before you can earn the right to be 40, 50 an hour. I think in a, in a, mar in a sort of environment of increasing, ever-increasing competition, things just have to be tighter and tighter and tighter, which is also probably why, you know, we're, we're being pulled away from scrappier podcasts. But, um, you know, yes, I 100% I agree. Okay. I have a life to live. I would like only have an hour episode. <laughs> Good. I could talk all day about this. But the final thing is, like, what is, what's the future for Hot Pot? I mean, you talked about, I really do think that the future of media in some large way is 
you know, these kind of small teams, I think it's you and one other person, right? But it's mostly you um, really focusing in on niches um, and, and having maybe not the biggest audience, but like, you know, a big enough audience that they can have a funnel that drives down into a paid model. Um, but it becomes a grind, right? Writing, writing about podcasting for a decade, it would be a grind, right? So what do you see, where do you see Hot Pod going? Does it need to be part of like, a larger group that ties together these things? I, so I, you know, there are two layers to that, to the answer here. One is sort of like this sort of, this trend is broader trend of, of single person newsletters. And then the second layer is just like, what do I want? And I think, you know, that's the kind of the, the, <laughs> the yeah. conflict point for any entrepreneur, right? The trend is there. You're absolutely right. Like I started Hotpot in 2014 and there weren't very many other like paid newsletters out there. Like I, I did this because I saw what Stractacary was doing, and I'm like, "Fuck it, I'll just do it." Um, and I'll, you know, he can do it if he can do it. Maybe I can do it. And now you have, uh, you know, this sort of generation, this sort of wave of journalists jumping ship and trying to do that themselves, powered in large part by a platform, Substack, which is venture funded. So there's an interesting, you know, dynamic there. Uh, but at some point, there is this wall that that you hit, not just from, not just creatively as as the journalist. But there's like, how many people are there will like pay for all of these things? Can you cut up the market so much that you'll be effective by just being sort of a generation of niche newsletters and, and media companies? At some point, we will see a, a great rebundling, re right? And I think that's kind of the feeling that that's where we're, we're all headed after, up until this point, which raises the question, what will Substack become? Uh, yeah. For me personally, like I've been doing this for six years. Um, it's it's a long time, and you know I miss working in teams, and that's part of why I, I kind of tried to start the show, uh, so that I get to work with producers again. Um, and you know, maybe this is unprofessional to say, but like I I would I'm happy to keep running the way that the way that Hot Pie's been going uh, for as long as there are interesting stories. But you know, I'd be also really happy if somebody would put me out of my misery. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I think we all feel that way some days. Um, well, thanks a lot. You you now have. I mean, you have to have a podcast. Nick. Well, I mean, it's yeah. like a requirement. Well, listen to my show. It's called Servant of Pod. Come on over. Also, subscribe to Hot Pod, and uh, you know, send me checks. Love checks. All right, totally. I I, I endorse this. I'm definitely um, subscribing. Thank you so much. I could do this for an hour, but I don't think it would uh, be optimized. Yeah, it's not good for listeners. Okay. Thanks, Nick. Thank and you. thank you all for listening. Um, we're going to be back next week with a new episode. Um, I'm actually going to be taking a, a little break from the podcast. Uh, my colleague, Lara O'Reilly, uh, has four great interviews lined up, and um, that's going to take us through August, and I'll be back fresh in September. <laughs>